The, the problem with trying to fix that by electing a new president or a new senator or get the right Supreme Court justices is the system itself is broken. And everybody just operates within that broken system. So trying to fix things in D.C. to me is like trying to fix a broken down car by changing the driver. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. My name is Mike Lovett, and I'm excited to have on the show today Michael Meharry, who is the National Communications Director at the Tenth Amendment Center. Um, and he's also a, a podcast host and an author. He's written four books, Constitution Owners, uh, Constitution Owners Manual, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to, uh, the Lost Path to Liberty, Smashing Myths, Understanding Madison's Notes on Nullification, and Nullification Objections, Dismantling the Opposition, which he wrote with Michael Bolden. And um, before, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about you and kind of your history, but before we do that, I want to... Explain to people the Tenth Amendment Center. I mean, that's such an interesting. Like, why not the First Amendment? Like, wh right. what is it about the Tenth Amendment Center, and, and and what do you do, and and why is the Tenth Amendment important? Well, you know, Thomas Jefferson called the Tenth Amendment the foundation of the Constitution. Uh, so obviously, it must be pretty important, and, and it really is. Um, for people who aren't familiar, and it's it's amazing how many people aren't. I remember one time I was at a, a an event. I think it was in South Carolina, and a woman that was running for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina was asking me which one the Tenth Amendment was. So, <laughs> you know, to assume that people to people know it off the top of their head is uh, assuming too much. Uh, <laughs> but basically, all it says is that any power that was not specifically delegated to the federal government remains with the states and the people. And the interesting thing about the Tenth Amendment is it actually doesn't do anything. If you removed it from the Bill of Rights, if it didn't even exist, the Constitution would fundamentally be exactly the same. The Tenth Amendment is what is known as a rule of construction. It tells us how to read the Constitution. It makes explicit what is already implicit in the Constitution itself. If you look at the way powers were delegated by the Constitution to the federal government, you'll see that it is very specific uh, – Article 1, Section 8 is the primary area where you find the powers of the federal government, uh, and they were mostly delegated to Congress. And you'll see a list there, uh, and, and the list is very specific. And whenever you read a legal document that has a list, uh, it has an as assumption attached to it that whatever is not listed is excluded. Uh, and uh, you know, there's no reason to make a list if you were just going to say you can do whatever you want. Right. So the list is uh, is exclusive, and that's basically all the Tenth Amendment says. It makes that explicit. If it's not on the list, the federal government is not empowered to do it. And so the Tenth Amendment Center was founded way back in uh, 2006 uh, by Michael Bolden. And the organization, we do kind of two things. We, we can sum up our mission with one little catchphrase that we like to use, follow the Constitution every issue, every time, no exceptions, no excuses. Um, be a good way to good good rule to live by if if you were the government. Of course, it does. For sure, <laughs> that, that would be the goal. And uh, and what we do at the Tenth Amendment Center, practically speaking, is uh, kind of two uh, two paths that run kind of parallel to each other. Uh, we do a lot of education to teach people what does the Constitution actually say and mean. 
what did the founders intend? What do we mean when we talk about supremacy and the general welfare and necessary and proper and all of these things? And uh, so, you know, just trying to teach what government schools have failed to teach over the last hundred years or so, the actual intent of the Constitution. And then the second path that the Tenth Amendment Center works on is activism. And that is primarily centered on state legislatures and using state and local power to block unconstitutional federal actions. Uh, the states have a tremendous amount of power in the American system. Again, something that's not taught in our government schools. Uh, but without state cooperation, the federal government can't do much of anything. The feds require on state resources, state personnel to enforce virtually every federal law and implement every federal program. When the state says we're not going to play, we're not going to cooperate in the enforcement of this law or the implementation of this program, it generally is not going to get enforced or implemented. Um, we've seen this most clearly over the last several decades with the legalization of marijuana starting in 1996 in California. Mm -hmm. To this day, the federal government still insists that uh, there's complete prohibition on marijuana, and yet I can go to my doctor here in Florida and get a little card and then go to a store and buy however much marijuana, well, not however much I want to, but right. um, I can certainly uh, purchase marijuana despite federal prohibition. And, th and that reveals the dirty little secret. The federal government can't enforce prohibition without the state and local governments enforcing it along with them. You can apply this same strategy to virtually anything. Um, enforcement of gun control, implementation of federal health care, enforcement of food laws, uh, you name it, the federal government needs state and local cooperation. So uh, that's what we do at the 10th Amendment Center. We work with states to try to pass laws at the state and local level that will undermine unconstitutional federal authority. So, so, and, and, uh, it's so interesting to me, um, that, that so many times you, you see these think tanks and these, these, um, um, guys working, you know, and they're working on, a, on the federal level, they are working at, you know, the Supreme court level or the, the federal court level a lot of times. Um, and you don't see a lot of people thinking about the power of state legislatures and, and, um, the states themselves. I, I really think that, that those powers have atrophied in a major, major way. Um, and, and you are seeing, like, like you said, you're seeing some, some glimmers of light, like with the marijuana rulings and, and, and other things, but where, where do you see, um, um, hope or, or what do you see? What do you see as, as let me ask you a, a different way. Um, why do you see state legislatures and states as the key? Um, and, and do you think you can revive the power that they have inherently in them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, simple answer is yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, you know, I, I personally feel like um, trying to change things in Washington, D.C. is a complete waste of time. And, in fact, Michael Bolden will often joke, never call the 202 area code, which is uh, the area code for D.C. Right. And, and to me, when you look at the system, you know, I, I just talked about this idea. <clears throat> excuse me of delegated powers, that the federal government has a few very specific powers that are supposed to be exercised by it, and most powers are supposed to be at the state and local level. Obviously, that's not the, the system that we have. We flipped it on its head. The uh, federal government exercises virtually every power imaginable, and the states have been relegated to virtual, um, I guess, counties almost. Yeah. 
The, the problem with trying to fix that by electing a new president or a new senator or get the right Supreme Court justices is the system itself is broken. And everybody just operates within that broken system. So trying to fix things in D.C. to me is like trying to fix a broken down car by changing the driver. Doesn't work. You know, I mean, <clears throat> you can put right. whatever you want in a broken down car that's up on blocks. The car ain't going nowhere. Same thing is true of, of Washington, D.C. We do, though, have tr tremendous amount of influence as individuals at the state and local level. And it's just the whole adage of, of government closer to home. You know, we are closer, uh, both in physical proximity and also kind of in, uh, in, in the sense that there are fewer people that they're representing at the state and local level. So I can call my state legislator and have an impact on their thinking much more than I am going to be able to call my senator. I mean, we've all called Washington, right. DC, right? And you get the intern and they they give you some platitudes. And then like three weeks later, you get an email. Oh, thank you for calling our office. And I, I've literally gotten emails that had nothing to do with the reason I called. You know? Right. <laughs> I actually talked to a state legislator in Kentucky. This has been a number of years ago, but he told me that he often went through entire legislative sessions without ever getting a call from a constituent on a particular piece of state legislation. So if you have a bill that's in a committee and that committee chair all of a sudden gets 50 phone calls, which really in the big scheme of things isn't a lot of phone calls, but if he gets 50 phone calls, he's going to pay attention because yeah. he's not used to that type of activism. So uh, we can actually get things. I've seen this happen. I've seen bills that were being held up by a committee chair and all of a sudden you get uh, you know, some grassroots activists making some phone calls and all of a sudden boom, miracle, the, the bill gets a hearing, you know, and it gets passed. So just from a, from a practical standpoint, from an activism standpoint, you have a lot more power working at the state and local level than you do at the federal. And again, as I emphasized before, the federal government cannot operate without state and local cooperation. And, you know, the interesting thing is this actually goes all the way back to before the Constitution. You know, this issue was brought up during the ratification debates. People were concerned that, hey, you're telling us that this is going to be a quote unquote limited federal government. And yet, what do we do if the federal government overstepped its bounds? And James Madison answered that question in Federalist 46. And he said, the means of opposition are powerful and at hand. And then he lists some things you could do, like protest and, and petition and, and vote the bums out. But the one piece of advice that he had in Federalist 46, which is just to me very profound, was he said a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. That's exact words he used. So he knew even back before the Constitution was ratified that if the states refused to cooperate with the federal government, the federal government was going to face what Madison called impediments. And he said if several states got together and refused to cooperate, he said it would create obstructions which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. So – you know, this isn't some new strategy that the Tenth Amendment Center came up with a few years ago. This this is the prescription that Madison gave us all the way back uh, in how to deal with overreaching federal power. It works. It's the power of no. It's like Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on the bus. And right. it's extremely effective. And we've seen it be extremely effective again in marijuana. You can go back in history. Uh, northern states effectively nullified and blocked enforcement of the fugitive slave laws <clears throat> in the few years leading up to the Civil War because they just refused to enforce them and, and uh, quite frankly, actively obstructed them. So when this happens, when states are willing to do it, then 
it, it can be very powerful. And I think we're seeing in a political environment where states are more willing to kind of stand up because I think a lot of people are realizing what I've already said that calling the 202 area code is is relatively useless. And uh, it's interesting in the last four years with Trump in office, we've seen a lot more interest in our strategy from folks on the left um, because they've recognized that, oh my gosh, uh, now you know we've had all this power and we've been imposing things from the top and it's been <laughs> great. Now, uh-oh, our guy's not in charge anymore. Uh, now, of course, right. all the folks on the left are going to go back to calling me a racist and a, and a neo-confederate now. But uh, you know, now the tr- the Trump people who were sending me nasty emails a few months ago, now they're going to be back on board with with state right. action. It is it it is interesting, and I really appreciate as I kind of looked over some things on the Tenth Amendment Center website. It, it truly is a um, I won't say necessarily non political because obviously politics play a role in it, but it is nonpartisan. It is it's 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 information. It's it's principles any kind of any over any kind of partisanship and and i really appreciate that 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 both people on the left and on the right can get on board with these particular principles because it is about um you know there's the old saying that uh all politics is are are is local and we've literally flipped that on its head we're now all politics is national and uh it's what I love about what you're doing is you're bringing it back to the, the locales where we can have a little bit more self-government and live the kind of life that you want to live with the people you want to live with, you know? Right. That to me is really, you know, the, the foundational aspect of this. I'm not, uh, I'm not like a constitution guy just because, you know, I, it was handed down from on high or something, or I have some great love for, you know, the founding fathers or anything like that. To me, it's really a strategy for a bigger, more broad principle of liberty. Uh, to me, the biggest threat to liberty is always centralized power. Concentration of power in the hands of a few is always dangerous. Decentralized power, dispersing power through many branches, through many different governments, uh, is, is inherently better for liberty over the long run. Uh, all governments are going to infringe on liberty at some point or another. I, I'm, I'm not a fan. You know, people will say, "Well, why do you trust state?" I don't. I'm, I don't trust state governments. I don't trust any governments. They're all run by sociopaths, right. as far as I'm concerned. But when you have multiple governments, you can pit them against each other, which creates you know competition, just like in the regular free market, and. Uh, it provides escape valves. You know, if something gets particularly bad in California, you can pack up and leave. Right. Uh, as long as you have freedom of movement, man, it's, it, it, it changes exactly. the game. So I am a big, you know, that's the broader principle to me is decentralization. I will always oppose centralized power uh, wherever it comes from, even when that centralized power is used for good. And this is where I run afoul of, of libertarians sometimes because – there's a, uh, there's a strong impetus, I think, in a lot of people that, well, if we can just get the right people in control of the central government, then they can impose liberty from the top. <laughs> well, that's dumb on a number of levels. First off, they're not going to do it because they're sociopaths and they don't want liberty. Right. But in the second place, any power that you give somebody today because you think they're a good guy has the potential to be in somebody else's hands down the road. They're not going to be in power forever. I mean, you would think that the left would have learned this when Trump was elected. You know, they they were all for, uh, you know, Barack Obama and his pen and phone and his executive orders until all of a sudden they woke up one day and Donald Trump was in office. 
And and then all of a sudden, you know, the Trump and I, I mentioned this a minute ago, the Trump supporters. I've been getting nasty emails for for months now because I've been critical of President Trump's overreach and his executive authority and all of these things because I know knew that at some point a Joe Biden or an AOC or whoever would have right. to those powers. So never give anybody any power that you wouldn't want your ex-wife to have over you. <laughs> that's, that's a good philosophy of life. <laughs> you know, it, and it is true. It's funny. Like, um, and, and I'm going to use this, this uh, um, example for dramatic effect a little bit, just because I can, it's my show. Right. But I, I've heard it said that, that if Hitler you know, if it, or let me put it this way: if, if Germany was still its 100 kingdoms and little city states that it was until 1850s or whatever it is when they when they unified, you know, Hitler would have been just a, a tyrant of his little town. You know, and and yes, it would have been awful for those people, but it would never have had the broad scope, um, international, worldwide catastrophe that that we saw. And 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 it is, I mean, you could just look at history that whenever power gets um centralized gets unified um bad things happen because because you you cannot trust the best people in those in those kinds of situations right lord acton you know power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely you know it's interesting if you read some of hitler's writings and not, not that i've read a lot but um i do know for a fact that he was very anti uh, what we would call today states' rights, because there was a, a long tradition in Germany of autonomy in the various German states, and you know, of course, that goes all the way back to the medieval times when they had uh, the, the various city states. And and uh, Hitler actually specifically talked about we need to do away with this. We need a national unity, uh, you know, one one control. We can't have people going in different directions. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the United States that have bought into this whole idea. I mean, we say that the, the stupid Pledge of Allegiance, um, I, I say it's stupid because it's not true. We're not one nation. It never was intended to be one nation. It's a, a union of independent states. And, and we're not indivisible. Mm -hmm. And the whole notion that it should be that way is prevalent in American thinking, and it, it leads to this mentality like you talked about. Everybody wants to run to Washington, D.C. to get their way. And um, ultimately, it's just eroding liberty a little by little by little as as we keep going down this path. And um, and that's one of the, if, if I could leave anybody with the with the uh, with one message, it would be resist this this centralizing tendency, resist this desire to have one size fits all government. Uh, I, I don't I don't understand it. I and mean, I guess maybe it's just because people don't think about it. You know, particularly people on the left who are the most anti-monopoly. You know, if if I suggested that you know Walmart should have a monopoly on groceries, and mm -hmm. uh, you know they're going to supply all the groceries in the United States, it'll be great because uh, it'll be centralized and they'll have uh, you know economies of scale and everything will be uniform and everybody would be like, no, this is an awful idea. We're going to get high prices and horrible service and limited selection. I'm like, okay, so why do you want this same system for government? It's a monopoly. The federal government is the biggest monopoly in the world. And anybody who doesn't like monopolies, who thinks we should break up monopolies, uh, should oppose the federal government. We need antitrust law for the federal government. That's what we need. Oh, wow. That's, that's, I think that's what the 10th amendment is, right? <laughs> exactly. We already have it. We need to use it. Uh, amen. So, uh, this is, uh, Michael Meharry. Uh, he's an author, podcast host, and the national communications director at the 10th amendment center. Um, 
a little bit about you. How, how did you come to this philosophy? Like where, um, a little bit about your background, where did you, um, um, start to learn about this and, and, and how did this stuff get infused into your life? Yeah. So I was, uh, for most of my adult life, so up until probably I was in my early 40s, I was pretty much your typical uh, run-of-the-mill right-wing kind of religious right Republican. You know, there was no war that I wouldn't support. Uh, loved Rush Limbaugh. You know, all all of that. I mean, you, you name the typical uh, Republican. Check, checklist and I would have fallen right down that checklist. Right. There were some things I think that were kind of fundamental in my my worldview at that point that uh, that that kind of made me ripe for the direction that I ultimately ended up taking. And I've always had this intuitive sense of of the need for quote unquote limited government. What I didn't understand for most of my life is that the Republicans don't really care anything about limited government. You know, but I but they said they did, so I figured I must be a Republican, right? And uh, like a lot of people, I kind of got caught up in the Tea Party movement in, uh, you know, 2010 in that in that area. Um, We were reeling from all of the deficit spending that we'd seen uh, in response to the financial crisis with Barack Obama. So that we had that Tea Party. If you remember, Tea Party was taxed enough already. Right. Was the mantra. And it's ironic that so many of those Tea Party people now are just – you know, falling all over themselves over Donald Trump, who just ran a $3.1 trillion deficit, uh, which is almost three times bigger than any deficit that Obama ever ran. Um, but that's a, that's a side note. I got, I got caught up in that whole Tea Party thing. And, um, you know. You actually believed it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean that, that was the principle. Right? <laughs> you know, the things that they were talking about were, were the things that kind of resonated with me. And uh, I had just I, I went back to school as a as an older adult um, after a number of years pl- playing musician and then uh, and then was in the airline industry for a while. I went back to school in 2006 and uh, got a journalism degree. So I was working in journalism. Uh, I love to write. I was kind of looking for some places that I could get involved um, and and do some writing to to kind of to have a bigger impact. You know, I, I realized that standing in a park holding a sign wasn't going to change anything. So. Uh, I stumbled across the 10th Amendment Center, just kind of, you know, I don't even remember how, to be honest with you, but I thought, oh, these guys seem cool. I knew what the 10th Amendment was. I knew that uh-huh. was about limited government. And uh, so I thought, well, these guys seem cool. And they had a little volunteer link, so I clicked on that. And um, they kind of vetted me. I'm not sure that they vetted me very well because they let <laughs> me, they let me take over the uh, – at the time, we had state chapters, and I, I was the okay. – uh, state chapter coordinator for Kentucky for a few months. And then Michael Bolden realized I was a pretty good writer. So he's like, Hey, you want to be our uh, national communications guy? I'm like, sure. And, uh, you know, really interestingly at the time, I still didn't really, I didn't really have a whole lot of knowledge, but I immersed myself in, in research and study and started reading. And, um, you know, I started reading, uh, you know, I started with things like the Federalist Papers and and uh, and then uh, uh, St. George Tucker's commentary on the Constitution, which was written just a few years after the Constitution was uh, was ratified. So it was kind of one of the first overreaching law books on the Constitution. Uh, right. I read Kentucky and Virginia resolutions and and then you know started getting into some of the uh, the uh, 
ratification debates, and I started to learn about what the Constitution really meant and said. And, and it took me about six months to realize that, oh, the Republicans are awful, too, <laughs> when it comes to the Constitution. And, uh, and, and that kind of just took me down, down the rabbit hole. And, and uh, from there, I actually started reading even more political philosophy, got into, uh, you know, Bastiat, I think, was probably the first um, my, my first real exposure to, to, to kind of libertarian thought. And, uh, you know, the next thing you know, I was reading Rothbard and Mises and, and, uh, Uh oh, (laughs) once you go down that, that black hole, you never come back. You know, they say, what's the difference between a, a minarchist and an anarchist? It's about six months. (laughs) That's funny for me. For me, it was about probably about three years, but. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I think, um, everybody, you, you talked about the, let me uh, back up a little bit. I think that we talked about the Tea Party, and then you had the uh, what was it called the um, uh, the something on Wall Street. The um, oh yeah, uh, Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. So you talk about these two two groups of people, and and you know if you really look at the heart of it, it from my perspective, and if, truly the heart, not not any of the the um, direction that leaders wanted to go, but actually like what was the core concept that they were, that they were fighting? It was essentially a lot of the same ideas. And that is, wait a sec. We understand that there is, there are these people that have power and control over our lives that we really never, um, ob- we, we, we never signed up for. I mean, this is not the plan that we wanted to have. And, and, and not that, that, Tea partiers and occupiers would would start the same sort of communities or would would live the same sort of lives or anything like that. But the fact is that they should have the freedom to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those groups recognize the problem, and I think you're right. I think they recognize fundamentally the same problem. Uh, I actually spent some time when the Occupy stuff was going on. Uh, there was a little group that was camped out in downtown Lexington, Kentucky, where I lived. And I spent some time talking with those folks, and and they did. They got the problems. The problem with both the Tea Party folks and the the Occupy folks is they both fell prey to the same impulse to want to not not say that we need to get rid of this power, but instead thinking we have to take it over and control it for ourselves. And so, you know, you, you had the Tea Party that, that turned into the Trump people and the Occupy right. people, I think, just turned into the Bernie people. And, you know, they're still fighting each other. Uh, right. And then the, the, the powers that be that are really the core of the problem. And, you know, when, when you get down to it, uh, you, you really want to start digging into, I mean, you got to start looking at the Federal Reserve and, and a lot of these institutions that um, we literally have no control over whatsoever. I mean, you could argue that maybe there is some control over who's the president or whatnot, but you know, I mean, the, the central bank policy goes on no matter who's in office. Right. 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 It's, it's only, our, it's only our money. <laughs> yeah. Wish, I, mean, um, I had a printing press to print money. <laughs> yeah, I'd be able to do it too. Right. Exactly. Oh, well, um, again, this is, this is Michael Meharry and, and, um, and I'm going to have to, to cut this a little bit short, but I do have one last question for you. What What are maybe one or two things that people can do um, to support, maybe get to know the 10th Amendment Center, obviously, but but what, what are some things that people can do in their own way to, to support the ideas of liberty and what the 10th Amendment stands for? 
Well, I think the, the key thing is to turn your attention away from D.C., quit obsessing over whether or not uh, Joe Biden is going to be the next president. He is. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and start looking at, OK, this is the reality we live in. What can we do at our state level or even the local level to push back against more federal overreach that we know is coming down the pike. How can you do that in your state? And, and that's going to vary from state to state because obviously states have different political makeups as, as, as well. So, you know, if you live in California, your strategy might be different than it is if you live in Georgia. But regardless, there are things you can do no matter what state you are in to push back against federal overreach. If you're in a more left-leaning state, uh, the, you can certainly get support for pushing back against the surveillance states, for instance, by imposing warrant requirements or restricting certain surveillance technology. That stuff at the local and state level hinders the federal surveillance state. Uh, you know, if you're in a if you're in a more right wing red state, uh, you might be able to get past uh, a, a bill to prohibit enforcement of federal gun control. Uh, there's already been a bill introduced in both Texas and Missouri that would do just that. That would prohibit any state or local support for the enforcement of new federal gun control. So, look at the ways that you can actually push back against the federal level. And, and of course, at the 10th Amendment Center, that's what we're doing every day. And if you want to learn more, you can go to 10thamendmentcenter.com. You spell out 10th. Uh, go check out our blog, which is blog.10thamendmentcenter.com. You can go directly to it, or you can just click on the link when you get to the website. And there, every day, you will see bill reports that we'll be posting as we're getting into the state legislative sessions, which mostly kick off in January and February. And you'll see these various areas that we're, that we're doing. And, and, and the issues range from asset forfeiture to sound money to uh, gun control to health care, FDA. Uh, we even have a bill, and this is one of my favorite things that, that is going to be going on in 2021, that would push back against the endless wars. Uh, it's called Defend the Guard, and it would, uh, depending on how you, how you look at it, either empower your governor or prohibit your governor uh, from deploying National Guard troops into foreign combat zones unless there is an actual congressional declaration of war as required by the Constitution. So even when something like foreign policy, state governments can have an impact. And uh, so get involved in those things. When you see these bills introduced in your state, then Take the 10 minutes to call your state representative, call your state senator, say, hey, you know, I, there's this bill, bill number dot dot that's going to do dot dot. I just ask that you support this bill and vote yes for it. That can go a huge long way. I guarantee you that is going to do more for your liberty than voting for a president or calling your congressman or posting on Facebook about how the Supreme Court sucks. You know, 10 minutes. It's almost like a Geico, Geico commercial. With <laughs> 10 minutes or less, you can Im improve your liberty. So that would really be my advice. Get, get involved at your state and local level. Find out who your state representatives are. Find out what's going on in your state. And get involved to push back against this federal overreach because it's, it's going to keep coming down the pike. The check on federal power isn't the Supreme Court. Uh, hint, the Supreme Court is part of the federal government. Uh, it's not reelecting, you know, vote the bums out because whenever you vote the bums out, you end up with new bums. March on DC is not going to do anything. You can make an impact at the state and local level. I can't emphasize that enough. So uh, just check out what we're doing. Check out the issues and, and find out where you can jump in.
Ah, wonderful. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you being on the show. And, and I, I look for, I hope, I mean, there's so many other issues I'd love to chat with you about. So, so let's, let's do it again. Can we? Oh, absolutely. Just, uh, you, you've got my contact. I'll be happy to come on anytime. It's a pleasure. Oh, fantastic. So this is Michael Meharry. You can find his information at michaelmeharry.com, 10th Amendment Center, 10th Amendment Center.com. I'll, they'll, they'll both be in the show notes. Um, and, and what are, um, tell me, what are the podcasts that, that you, that you run so people can check them out? Well, the, uh, the main thing that I do, I, I, I do all of the, uh, the content for Shift Gold, which is a company that sells precious metals. Uh, a lot of people might be f- familiar with Peter Schiff. It's his gold company. And uh, you can check out all of my writing work at shiftgold.com slash news. And then I do a, a weekly podcast called The Friday Gold Wrap and primarily focuses on what's going on with the Federal Reserve, uh, monetary policy, economics, uh, the way that the Fed is distorting the economy and, and basically enabling the biggest government in the history of the world. So I do that every week. And then I also have a, a podcast called the Godarchy Podcast that you can find over at godarchy.org. Uh, it is a Christian-based look at uh, voluntarism and anarchism uh, from from kind of a libertarian anarchism perspective. And uh, I've been doing that for about two years, so can check awesome. that out as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, and I look forward to it. We'll uh, have you on again to talk about more of these issues. Uh, thanks Sounds again, Michael Thanks Take for having care. me. You're welcome. This is And If Love Remains.